0: Alright, y'all could all please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today we'll be reading in Luke, chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. Uh, if you're reading through a, a blue Bible, that'll be found on page 501. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you're welcome to take those home. They're found in the seat backs in front of you. Alrighty. Hear the word of the Lord. Let's see here. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Thus says God's word. All
1: right, let's pray over the word that we've heard. Father, thank you so much for the truth revealed to us through the scriptures. We pray that they would drill down deep into us, God, and become living to us. And, and God, the breath of the Lord within us, that we would conform our lives to them and, and that our eyes would be open to see you as perhaps we've never seen you before. God, we pray that our ears would be attentive and that we wouldn't be distracted by just other thoughts and, and that you would guard our minds as we focus on these realities. God, we also pray for myself that you would help me to to be an effective communicator of these marvelous truths, these truths that in reality are too high for me, too wonderful. I cannot uh, comprehend them. I cannot communicate them well without the help of your Holy Spirit. And so, God, I'm relying on you this morning. So help us to see you this morning as you are, for you cannot be other than what you are. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, Hey, before we start, I want Jim stand up real quick. Um, Jim McLemore here. Uh, You might have seen in your bulletin that we were going to have a discussion group at the park today, um, and we are not. But what we're doing instead... Is uh, at Jim. Jim has opened up his home, and he is inviting everybody to come over um, that wants to, that is lo- like looking for a deeper connection. And he's especially uh, asking you guys. Or we've al- have a lot of people in the last few weeks that are relatively new to Northridge, and um, I wanted you guys to see who Jim was. He's going to be in the foyer afterwards. If you'd like information, his address, and and, and that, and and there will be some food provided. Correct? Is, am I? yeah so um but we we 'd love to have you be a part of that i 'm going to go over there um as well, and so we would love to have you and just be a part of that. so just make yourself at home with that i didn 't want to forget to mention that, so thank you for doing that, Jim. We appreciate it um, now uh so we 're in this series on the attributes of God, and so far we 've spent a couple of weeks few weeks talking about what the Bible reveals as most fundamental to the being of God things like he's he's incomprehensible things that he like he's uncreated that he is invisible that he's self-existing that he's self-sufficient and therefore completely independent now last week we expanded on this theme By looking at the fact that God is revealed to us in the scriptures as unity in trinity and trinity in unity. And what this means is that God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of these persons is fully God, (coughs) excuse me, and yet there is only one God. And this has always been the position of Orthodox Christianity, with no exceptions. Now, we mostly, last week, examined what the persons of the Trinity hold in common, um, affirming the fact, for example, that they are all fully God, and that there is no inequality in their being, their essence, um, the attributes in them, Um, that they're all actors in the significant works of God in the scriptures. Um, And they're all worthy of our devotion, our gratitude, our adoration. They not only share a unity of essence, we discovered, but they also share a unity of purpose as well. And what does this mean? It means that they have never once, ever, in all eternity, had a dispute or a disagreement about what they would accomplish as God. They, and that, that applies to everything, whether we're referring to their work of creation or their work of redemption. In this sense, they have but one will. And they're never pitted against each other. You never, as I said last week, have a vote where the Father and Holy Spirit vote against the Son or, or the, the Spirit and the Son vote against the Father. They're always in perfect unity. And today, what I want to do is I wanted to spend the second week in the Trinity, and as I said last week, and I meant it, I could spend months, and... and what I hope that you see in this study is that you could spend months just meditating on these things, um, but, but I just want to take one more week on the Trinity and for the purpose of mining into these truths just a little bit deeper. I want to go deeper into the mind with our pickaxes and see what nuggets of truth we can dig out of God's Word. And I want to focus this week not on what each of the three persons of the Trinity hold in common, but what makes them each distinct. Um... The, the, in their place in the, in the Godhead? How, are, how do we see them? How can we uh, justly say that, that the Father is a distinct person, the Son is a distinct person, the Holy Spirit is a distinct person? I think that's an important question to ask. Amazingly, however, when we're done looking at them individually, I suspect that what we're going to do is see them more clearly in unity. The closer you look at any individual uh, person of the trinity the more you see the oneness of god the 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 unity that exists in god and that's just part of the divine mystery of the trinity now uh northridge life church our confession of faith we're a confessional church and we adhere to the second london baptist confession of 1689 now if you're new here that may not mean anything to you but it it's a statement drawn from the scriptures of uh, a a, a kind of a a concise statement of the doctrines that the church believes. And on the Trinity, it says this. I think we're going to have it up on the screen. Here it says, The Father is not derived from anyone, neither begotten nor, nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. These three are distinguished by several distinctive characteristics and personal relations. Now what I want to focus on this morning are the terms derived, eternally begotten, proceeding, and also on this statement of several distinctive characteristics and personal relations. If all three persons of God are eternal and immortal, which we absolutely affirm here, then what can be meant by these odd terms, eternally begotten or proceeding? What kinds of distinctions can we make between three persons who are all fully God and comprise one God? Can we do that at all without robbing one person of God of their full divinity or another person of God of their full divinity? And do we re- re- risk, when we examine this, do we risk regarding any of them by creaturely standards just by considering them this, w- this way? This is what we're going to wrestle with today. So when orthodox theologians, in other words, theologians that... that derive their, their uh, thoughts, their thinking from the Word of God, when they speak of the, the distinctions that exist between the Father or, or in the Father and the Son and in the Holy Spirit, they're quick to establish the biblical guardrails so they don't run off the cliff that we briefly studied in the last three weeks. That God is, in His entirety, in His, in his fullness, God is uncreated and therefore He's eternal. No person of Him originates No person of him improves, no person of him diminishes. These realities apply to all three persons of the Trinity equally. And if you take any of those qualities away from the Trinity, then you have a a situation where you have a superior God and one or two lesser gods. Or worse, and more heretically, you have one God and one or two created beings existing within the Trinity. And we cannot accept any of that. And so because of this, they've insisted on this idea of one Godhead, another term for the Trinity, with equal essence and substance, with equal power, with equal eternity, that cannot be divided. Such division, if we were to do that, if we were to say, well, Jesus is a little bit different than the Father, and the Son is a little bit different than the Holy Spirit, if we were to do that, we would propose a fiction that flies directly in the face of biblical revelation on the being of God. God. The Bible tells us what God is like. And yet the whole Bible shows that these, these distinctions are real. There, there are real distinctions in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're not just modes of being like we talked about last week. Therefore, the church has always regarded these distinctions that are revealed in the persons of the Trinity in three specific categories the order of the trinity the, uh, the operation of the trinity and the office of, of each person rather of the trinity order office and operation and right belief is maintained by understanding these distinctions in these arenas in uh, that they don't in any way dismiss or diminish the divinity of the father the divinity of the son and the divinity of the holy spirit y'all still keeping up with me so far i'm trying to set the stage here you ever, everybody with me Two, three, four, five. Okay, okay. I see a couple hands, so I'm preaching to you too. Um, the Father, when we talk about order, the Father is always revealed in the Scriptures as first in order. Everything from the creation of the world, to the grand plan of redemption, to the election of certain individuals to be heirs of salvation, heirs uh, uh, to be a part of the elect, All of this originates in Him, in the Father. Let me, let me, let me, let's do this. Everybody, open your Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 1. (coughs) Cameron, will you bring me that water bottle that's on the front seat there? Thank you, sir. Ephesians chapter 1. Now what I want you to do, we're going to begin in verse 3. And what I want you to see in Paul's grand introduction to the book of Ephesians. I want you to see um, all of the things that he attributes that directly relate to our salvation. And he attributes them not to the Son directly and not to the Holy Spirit directly, but directly to the Father. Now are the Son and the Holy Spirit involved? Absolutely. But he, he attributes all of the origin and the, 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 the direction of this to the Father. We see this in the first line, but verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch this. Keep, keep up with this. Who has blessed us... glorious grace which he has blessed us with in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight making us making known to us the mystery of his will are you seeing this according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Sometimes we skip right past the Father and give all the credit, all of the, the, the attention for our salvation, which isn't necessarily wrong, but we go right to Jesus, which Jesus deserves all the praise. We praised Him this morning for it. But, but, but Paul is, is seeing a, a, a beautiful, magnificent, all com- encompassing role of the Father in our salvation. Don't you find that amazing? Because most of us, in one form or another, have been taught, even though we never say it like this or admit it this way, that the Father was the bad guy who Jesus had to come and fix everything on the cross. But it was the Father who has blessed us. He chose us to be holy and blameless. He chose us for adoption according to His purpose. He is to be praised for His glorious grace. He made known to us the mystery of His will. He set forth His amazing purposes in Christ for the purpose of uniting all things in who? In Himself. Praise the Father. Even the title of Father is significant to understand his primacy in the order of the Trinity. Every early reader of the New Testament would instinctively understand this supremacy when he makes himself known by the title Father. He could have revealed himself to us in any title. King. Would that have been an accurate title for God? Yes, it's used in the Bible. How about judge? Would that have been an accurate title for God? You bet he is and will be your judge one day. But Jesus never ever hesitated to refer to him in relation to himself and more gloriously in relation to you as father. See, this was a culture in those days where fathers were honored as the head of a household, the head of a clan and not just until the kids moved out, Cameron but he was revered throughout their entire lives later in Ephesians Paul says that God has been revealed as the true father from whom every family in heaven and on earth has been named, in other words he is the he is the, the, the premier father, he is the, the, the epic example of fatherhood And he's not only first in order though, but as we saw from Ephesians, he holds the office of the architect of all the manifold works of God. His operations in the Trinity are to decree or to plan and to send forth. He's the initiator. He directs the affairs of every atom in all of the creation. He sends forth His Word. He sends forth His Son. He sends forth His Spirit. And He sends forth His servants to accomplish His perfect will. Now the Son is the second person in order of the Trinity. Now, some of you who may be unfamiliar with these doctrines... Find even this terminology, the Son is second, to be problematic because you assume it implies some sort of subordination of essence, like Jesus is kind of the step-down God. And this is something, this subordinationism, it actually has a word, is actually something that the Bible absolutely and, and totally denies. What it simply means when we say Christ is second the son is second in order, it simply means that he is the only eternally begotten son of the father who loves, honors, and submits to his father as a faithful son would. And yet the father is never seen in scripture ever as domineering over the son, but rather he's seen delighting in the son. Remember our text from last week? Jesus is baptized. He comes up out of the water. The Spirit descends on Him. And what does the voice from heaven say? This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, He's standing there. His disciples are stunned as they see Jesus talk with a a resurrected Moses and Elijah. And He's standing there. And a voice from heaven says, This is my Son! Listen to Him! What is he saying? He's saying, the law that Moses gave you and the prophecies of Elijah, they all submit to what my son says. Listen to him. Listen to what Jesus himself said about his relationship to the Father. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. It says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal to him or to reveal him. And what does this knowing mean? It doesn't mean that God doesn't know the or the son doesn't know the name of every human being that has now or ever occupied the face of the earth or ever will. No, of course he does. He's God. But when we say, when we use the word know in scripture in this way, it's talking about intimate, relational knowing. Most of you in this room know my wife, Ginger. Most of you do. But none of you knows her like I know her. It's relational. It's intimate. As a son is the heir of all of his, uh, his father has, so the father withholds nothing from the son that he's loved throughout all eternity. So what do we mean when we by this saying, this strange saying, that he is eternally begotten? We all know, we're all grown-ups here, we know what begotten means, all of us were begotten. So when we say that the Son is eternally begotten, do we mean that he had a beginning in time, like you and I did when we were begotten by our parents? Well, we mean nothing of the sort. The key is not the word begotten, the one we get hung up on. The key is the word eternally. What it means is that throughout all eternity, it pleased the Godhead, that the first and second persons would relate as father and son. Just as the triune God had no origin point, neither did this relationship. It just always been a relationship of father and son. And it always was, it is now, and it always will be. And, and that should comfort you so much. Because The Bible says that that God said to His people, not to His Son, but to His people, in, in the book of Jeremiah, it says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. If you want to understand the way that God's love endures, look at the Father's love for the Son. He has loved the Son as His Son throughout all eternity, which has no beginning. It's a beautiful picture. So what do we do with scriptures like this, Psalm 2-7, which the Bible clearly tells us is a messianic psalm. It's it's pointing forward to the Messiah, where it says this, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today, what's that? It's a time reference, isn't it? Today I have begotten you. So what do we mean in this passage when we say today? Well, the today spoken of here is the eternal today. What do I mean by that? Well, eternity, we always think of eternity as just the ticking of the clock forever and ever, just the passage of time. But that's a, that's a terrible way to think of eternity. And the reason we must do that is because time is all we know. We don't know what's outside of time. But eternity truly is a state that has no yesterdays and no tomorrows. Eternity is as unchangeable as the triune God that rules over it. And so when he says, today you are my son, he is his son eternally. Don't you love that? I love that. The son is known as a son by his willing submission and obedience to his father's good pleasure. Now again, we have a problem. When we hear that, words of obedience, words of submission, we can only imagine a conflict of wills That can only be overcome when one party surrenders his desires, surrenders his rights, surrenders his demands. One person gives up and the other person, that's what submission in our context means. If, if, uh, you know, if I submit to my boss, it means that I gave up what I wanted to do, maybe take a day off and did what he wanted me to do. And we think this way, we can only think this way, Because we're sinners. Is it okay for me to say that? We're sinners. Every one of us. And we're sinners who live in constant conflict in this life with our bosses, our spouses, our children, our fellow church members. To one degree or another, we're always in conflict. And for us, that means that our wills and our desires and our demands are in perpetual collision with each other perpetual but the will of the father you must understand exists in perfect harmony with the will of the son like I have a, a daughter-in-law named Savannah beautiful young lady you guys have met her a few years ago when she did the, the music for our Thanksgiving she's a violinist and she is a very accomplished violinist she plays in two different symphonies two different orchestras Um. And I'm always amazed. She'll, at the house sometimes, she'll play something so beautiful. But then we'll go see her at the symphony. And she begins to play her instrument. And then an entire brass section comes in. And a percussion session, a section comes in. And a woodwind section comes in. And, and they're all completely different instruments. But when they're tuned properly and they come into the harmony, it makes something magical. And what a great analogy this is to the harmony that exists within the, the, the uh, uh, relationship of the Father decreeing and the Son submitting. See, and, and, and it, it's the Father's perfect will to decree good for His creation. And it's the Son's perfect will to carry out that decree obediently. The office of the Son is to be the executor of the will of the Father, whether He is standing at His side, a creation, or whether He's enduring His wrath on the cross, the wrath of God against sinners. His joy is always to please the Father in everything that He does. One time the disciples came to Jesus and they're worried about His nutrition and hydration and they said jesus you ought to eat something and jesus said this in john 4:34. jesus said to them my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work all he lived for was submitting obediently to the father's will Christ has never failed to please the Father because He always does His will. And He never does this under compulsion, but because as the Father delights in Him, He delights in the Father above all else. The Holy Spirit is third in order of the Trinity. And again, this doesn't speak to His importance or power or eternity or substance. It just speaks to the way of their operations. He proceeds... From the Father and the Son to effect and apply what the Father has decreed and the Son has accomplished. Why do we use the terminology that He proceeds? Well, as many of you know, in the Hebrew, the word for spirit is ruach, and in the I, I hate those Hebrew words. It always sounds like I'm about to hack something up on you. You ever notice that? Last week I used the angel Malach and then ruach, and then, and but in, in in the Hebrew it's it's ruach, and, and in in the Greek, it's pneuma, and it means literally breath. So the Holy Spirit is the holy breath of God. And, and breath proceeds out of, out of God in that imagery, that it goes forth and, and, it, and it affects and applies what the Father decreed. It's like when we speak, the way speech works is breath is coming out in the formation of our tongues and our teeth, and it makes certain sounds. And think about that. God decrees and his breath goes out and does exactly what he decreed. That gives me chills, honestly. To think of the Holy Spirit like that. And then to think of him as a person. His role includes, at the beginning we see him bringing order, as I said last week, to the newly formed world. And now we see him in seeking out and effectively calling God's elect and transforming them into the image of Christ. Jesus said about the Holy Spirit that he will bear witness about him unto both salvation and the condemnation of this world that is populated only by sinners. In other words, if sinners come to faith, it will be because the Holy Spirit bore witness to the salvation of Christ. If they die in their sins, it will be because the Holy Spirit bore witness to the condemnation of sinners and the righteous judgment of God. Listen to what Jesus said in John 16. 16 verse 33, it says, when the Spirit, this is Jesus informing His disciples about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, pay attention, He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. I want you to not forget this. Say, the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. Say it. That's so important. The Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. He will glorify me for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Father decrees things that the Son accomplishes, then the Holy Spirit comes and makes them known through His Spirit to the church. It's a beautiful picture of unity, isn't it? Now, here's here's the problem. The reason I wanted you to repeat that phrase, I, I think that's a sometimes obnoxious thing that preachers say. When I say, "Everybody say love," you know, so I, I hate it when preachers do that. But I did it. I I, I, I broke my own ban for this reason. Because the pro- there is no person of the Trinity more horrifically misunderstood in this day and age than the Holy Spirit. The charismatic movement, the, mo- the problem with the modern charismatic movement is not that they focus too much on the Holy Spirit. The problem is that they don't really understand the Holy Spirit at all. That's the problem. They imagine a Holy Spirit who in majestic holiness speaks to every trivial and temporal concern, and he does so on his own authority with no reference to Christ whatsoever. But what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? I just had you repeat it. What's the ministry of the Holy Spirit? To glorify Christ. And when we do this, when we see the Holy Spirit is only there to speak to our trivial and temporal concerns, on his own authority, what we do is we separate him from that divine mission of glorifying Christ. He is no longer recognized as God most holy. He's just an invisible therapist. Let me tell you something about the Holy Spirit. That I will live and die on this hill. The Holy Spirit was not sent by the Father and the Son to give us tickles and giggles. May I say that again? The Holy Spirit was not sent from the Father and the Son proceeding out of their mouth to give us tickles and giggles. He was not given to ensure our worldly success. He wasn't given to impart secret knowledge about the future. He came to magnify Christ and convict the world of sin, to convict the world of righteousness, to convict the world of judgment. That is the Holy Spirit as revealed in this book. Remember the order of the Trinity, the the offices that they occupy, the operations by which they fulfill their individual offices, does not imply in any way, I know I've said this over and over, but I don't want you to miss this point, it doesn't imply a hierarchy or subordination in the essence of the triune God. Remember our third statement from last week? We've made three statements. First, God eternally exists in three persons. Second, each person is fully God. And the last one, there is one God. On the contrary, when you meditate long enough, as I said at the beginning, on the flawless harmony in the operations of the Trinity, you will become amazed at what those operations have accomplished and the unbroken, uncorrupted love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that has been extended throughout eternity, or that has existed throughout eternity and now has been extended to pitiful, rebellious, undeserving creatures like you and I. That perfect love that existed far before the world began has now been been given an extension to us and we're invited into that perfect love. That should blow every mind in here. Their order is a true order. You never find references to the Son or the Spirit sending the Father. Or you never find references to the Spirit begetting the Son. Instead, you only see the Son obeying the Father, and the Father and Son together sending the Holy Spirit. Their offices are true offices. If God were one person, and somehow had had decreed to die for us, it would have been heroic. But listen to me carefully, it would not have been nearly as beautiful. What humility... Is demonstrated by the son as he takes on flesh and dies for us. What love we see in a father who would send him to die for us. What honor we see in Christ is that he submits to or that he bestows on his father as he submits to death on that cross. How much more Do we see the cost of our redemption as we watch the eternal Father willing to give up His eternally, spotlessly innocent Son to pay the penalty for ungrateful sinners? Some, as Paul says, might be willing to die a martyr's death. But how many of you would offer your child to pay with its life a penalty, not for some righteous cause like a soldier, but to pay the penalty for the guilty? Would you offer your child to pay a penalty for those that mocked him as he was dying? And See, it wasn't just that Christ took the penalty of sin, but he had all the genuine guilt and all the genuine shame of all of our sin piled upon his sacred head. And the Father, for the sake of his boundless, inexplicable love for his creatures, watched that hellish drama unfold. And more, he decreed it, so that we might escape his wrath and become his people. In the glorious aftermath of those horrific events, death was found to be an unworthy opponent for the King of Kings. Father and Son sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in the hearts of believers and to make them His dwelling place forever. His temple, not not a temple made with hands. God and man, God and humanity, for the first time were reconciled By harmonious love. No longer did God need a building in Jerusalem. And no longer did he have a single nation as his people. But the Holy Spirit was sent forth to call the elect. From every race. Every tribe. Every tongue. Every nation on this globe. The Trinitarian operations. Are also true operations. As the Father's decree still stands. As the. Blood of the Son still cleanses, and as the voice of the Holy Spirit still convicts and calls. This is why a robust Trinitarian doctrine is not an option for Christians. This is what Charles Hodge, the great uh, theologian, said. He said, it is a great mistake to regard Trinitarian doctrine as a mere speculative or abstract truth concerning the constitution of the Godhead with which we have no practical concern or which we're required to believe simply because it's revealed. On the contrary, Hodge says, it underlines the whole plan of salvation and determines the character of the religion of all true Christians. Another theologian, Georg Meyer, said, the Trinity is the point in which all Christian ideas and interests unite. At once the beginning and the end of all insight into Christianity. And I could not agree more. I said it last week. Why do we sing the Gloria Patri? Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. Why do we end every benediction with, a, with, a, with in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? This is a robustly Trinitarian church. Because if we were not, we would not be a Christian church. We see this so wonderfully in the text we read this morning. See, oh all thought I forgot the text. I didn't. When Jesus took the scroll in the synagogue of his hometown Nazareth, we read a prophecy from Isaiah 61, and that prophecy is amazing because it is framed in absolutely Trinitarian language. People often say there was no Trinity expressed um, until the New Testament. Well, they'd have a big problem with this verse. Listen to this. The Spirit of the Lord, he quotes Isaiah 61, verse 18 of Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Spirit of the Lord, it's the Holy Spirit. He, uh, or me in in this verse, is Jesus. He has sent me to proclaim, proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is using Isaiah's words, his prophecy, to say that that the Holy Spirit had anointed him, empowering him to fulfill every aspect of the gospel of the kingdom of God. The good news for the poor, liberty for the captives, restored sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed. And you may have thought, well, where is the Father? Well, what was this day prophesied so long a day, uh, uh, so long time ago? What was this day called? It was the year of the Lord's favor. What God had decreed, the Spirit anointed Jesus to bring about. The Spirit enabled what the Son undertook to do so that the decree of the Father might be fulfilled. This was the moment that had been planned before the, the since way before the foundations of the world had been laid, and now it was fulfilled. The three... Divine musicians played their instruments in perfect harmony. And in their in their harmony, they formed one eternal song to the praise of his glorious grace. What prophets searched for and what angels longed to understand had arrived, Jesus said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And who has benefited from this music more than us who have heard the sweet melody on whom the end of the ages have come? Others, generations before us, heard only the rehearsal. They heard mere fragments of a tune. But we hear the entire finished symphony through the revelation of God's Word. And when we consider it, we shout and we weep with joy at every crescendo, at every movement of the story, because it was, it was done in perfect harmony by the three blessed persons of the Holy Trinity. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you that This story would not be nearly the story that it is had it not been for the harmonious relation and operations, offices, and order of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are truly grateful. Lord, help us never to disregard the Father's role in our salvation. To never God bring dishonor on the son who has sacrificed so much that we might be saved and to never God heretically misunderstand the role of the Holy Spirit who has come to glorify Christ father I pray that you would help us to see and understand God that the scriptures through this lens of your revealed being father son and Holy Spirit three in one and one in three we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask our communion workers to come and and help us this morning. Um, uh, what can I say? We we really love preaching toward the sacrament. In other words, seeing the fulfillment of of the truth of the gospel in this this moment at the table each week and and. What can I say that the the emblems that we've been given of the broken bread and the cup of wine are so clearly from what Jesus said. They're just emblems of a completed work that had been decreed from the Father, that had been accomplished by the Son, and that you have become partakers of through the Holy Spirit. And so thank God for all of that. So as you consider the, the amazing and admittedly incomprehensible revelation of God's glory in the Trinity, come to this table with rejoicing in your heart. And every week I say the same thing and I will continue that probably till I, I'm done here in ministry, but the, if you do not know Christ as your Savior, if you have not personally partaken of His goodness and His grace, putting your trust in Him, not just as Savior, but also as Lord, as the boss of your life, then please don't, don't come forward for this, this sacred act. The, the Bible says, as I remind you every week, that it says that those who, who partake unworthily, partake judgment or condemnation upon themselves, and we would not want you to, to, for fear of of missing out on something we would not want you to to in jeopardize your very soul and so we we just ask you to, to remain but the more important thing as i always say we're praying for you we want you to come to know the savior in reality and so if you if, if god is doing something in you and you have questions and you want to know and you want to resolve in your heart that you are one of his, please, by all means, seek out myself after the service. Be bold and do this. Find Pastor David, find Gabriel, and um, we would love to have that chat with you. We'll give you all the time you need to have that that chat in fullness. But for the rest of you, come with rejoicing in your hearts, receive these elements, take them back to your seat, and we'll take them together in just a moment. The Apostle writes for us, for I received from the Lord... For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's give thanks with all of our hearts for what God has accomplished. God, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the complete and beautiful indescribable work of our salvation we thank you for the wisdom of god it displays we thank you for the power of god it displays we thank you for the love mercy and grace of god that it displays and god we pray that you would uh, lord draw us back to the fountains of your grace lord daily constantly as we seek to please you in all things, as we seek to submit to and obey you as the Son does, we pray that you would just make us, God, just a people who live lives worthy of the calling that we've received. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, place your hands in a receiving position. And I just want to give you this great passage from the Apostle Paul as a benediction. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, Amen. You are dismissed.